The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, would you say you had a happy childhood? Well, people would always tell me I was from a broken home because I was raised by a single mom who didn't want to be called a single mom because she was married for five minutes and had me in four minutes. But I don't know. I think I went through what a lot of, you know, white kids went through as a kid, but it was pretty happy in spite of like I looked at other people's supposedly non-broken families, non-broken homes, and the fathers were never there or people had drinking problems. And so, yeah, I think I had a pretty, pretty happy childhood. What about you? Well, I didn't come from a broken home, but there were days that I wish that I had because my parents had a highly dysfunctional marriage and that took its toll. But I ask because the notion of a happy childhood is a very modern idea. Children were barely seen as humans up until the last century. And I mean, they were either being thrown off cliffs in ancient Greece or abandoned or put in orphanages that were really workhouses or sweatshops or, you know, married off as child brides. Wait a second, that's still going on, actually. Well, a lot of that stuff is still happening. The abandoned, beaten, terrorized, abused, I'm hoping that's not happening here. But yeah, it's it's not clean. And whoever said that childhood is the happiest time of life anyway? Well, you know, and imagine we were white, middle-class kids growing up. And can you imagine what it would have been like if we were not? Yeah. So I, I do try and imagine it. I, I mean, like you, I couldn't I couldn't wait to grow up, but it wasn't because I was unhappy. It was because I, you know, I think things are a little bit different for, for us white kids. <laughs> well, this is this is all part of the conversation, isn't it? I mean, especially the great Canadian shame that has emerged over the last few years, residential schools, mass graves, cultural genocide. But before we depress the pants off of you, we are so grateful and happy to tell you about our guest this week. Cindy Blackstock has emerged as a voice, some say a relentless voice for Indigenous children in this country and all over the world, actually. Yeah, I am actually really thrilled. I feel like I know her, but on these podcasts, we get to know people a little bit better. So I'm actually thrilled. A bit of background, she's the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, which basically took on the feds, like took on the entire government to, to ensure that Indigenous kids be treated the same way, get the same access to care and funding and support that all kids in the country supposedly have. It's called Jordan's Principle, which is about the idea of equality, but also about the idea of like, let's not go to court for 25 years to try and figure this out. Let's try and help the kid now. And, and Jordan, Jordan didn't make it. I think he was five when he died. A little boy who died in a hospital while the argument was taking place. So Dr. Blackstock is a professor of social work at McGill, where she was just given the school's highest honor, one of many, so many honors, all deserved. She was just named chancellor of the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. Her work has taken her all over the world. She often travels with a spirit bear. It's a teddy bear from BC, and he helps her teach children about reconciliation and also reminds her and us as you just mentioned, to focus on children over politics. Yeah, it was so much to ask her about. I want to ask about the bear and everything, but just to meet her. Because she basically says she's she's a single mom to 163,000 kids. And those are all the kids that she's been trying and has helped over the years. So I guess, Maureen, think about that the next time, you know, your kids start driving you crazy. <laughs> I only have two of them, but it's our great pleasure to welcome Dr. Cindy Blackstock. Cindy, hello. Hello. I am really honored to be in the Ill Repute Club. This is the thing. 
Yeah, we think every woman who has ever fought for anything, which is kind of you, is a woman of ill repute. And lots of men are too. But you are particularly a woman of ill repute. And it's, uh, yeah, any, we used to get called all kinds of things. So we're proudly wearing it. So I'm so glad that you see yourself as... <laughs> you know what? It's what John Lewis has always said, is you have to be prepared to get into good trouble. And we teach people that getting into trouble is a bad thing. And if you're just being a nuisance, and yeah, it is. But sometimes we need to have good trouble in our societies to uplift us to our human potential. That's what we're trying to do here. Can I ask you about your own childhood? So how, looking back on it, I've heard you say that you had kind of a wonderful childhood. Yeah, I would say it was a complicated childhood because really I had my parents, but I also had the government of Canada trying to be a third parent in my life. You know, I grew up in rural and remote areas all over Columbia because my father was into horses. And this will, again, date me. But back in the day when you had lookout towers and rangers. That is so cool. Yeah, it was like unincorporated childhood. But when my first job was when I was four years old and I was picking pine cones. So we'd go out and get gunny sacks and fill them full of pine cones and they'd be used for reforestation up in northern B.C. And as I was doing that, I had no idea that the government of Canada was actually out there hunting for kids like me to put us in residential schools. This was in the 60s and 70s. And you need to keep in mind, too, that I was born in 1964. It was only in 1960 that we became persons under Canadian law. And it was only in 1960 that we actually could go to post-secondary education. Because before that, we weren't people and not allowed to go there unless you did something which is called enfranchise, which is renounce all of your Indigenous identity, not only for yourself, but for any descendant would follow. So it was the Canadian government consistently inserting itself, sometimes through the legacy of its actions in terms of the trauma from residential schools that was impacting our community and impacting our family, and sometimes just directly as this haunting presence that was always around. I was just reading about you, Cindy. It was so fascinating to talk about children and, and childhood and your hope that this generation might be the first generation to not have to recover their childhood. And I, like you experienced it, you had parents who loved you and looked after you, but you felt it. So many other kids that you fought for, like maybe talk about that and the lack of, of respect, the lack of feeling that you're the same as anybody else. Right. Well, part of colonization, it doesn't get enough play, is how there was propaganda among the Canadian public to lead people to believe that there was a dehumanization of First Nations, Métis and Inuit people, that we we're somehow lesser than, that we're always on the tape, that we're always just going to grow up to be on welfare, that we're never satisfied that they're giving us all this money and they're not even grateful. They should, you know, for our generosity. When the truth was, is that we had an Indian act that was, and it's still with us, that hands out cards to those that the government of Canada believes are Indians and those who are not, and that created the reserves and also created a regime where the federal government would fund public services on reserve, but to far lesser levels than everybody else. And that's why we get things like we still have First Nations communities without clean drinking water. Like that is ridiculous. That just tells you how it is. But it's been so normalized in the Canadian fabric that many people, although they would see it and they would see news clippings and they think, well, that's not right. It was somehow made normal in society. And that was the most difficult thing. I often said when we started to try and remedy this, that it was like screaming into silence. 
I want to ask you about kind of a reverse reaction lately, without necessarily naming names of people who are now claiming status or claiming to be Indigenous, dubious claims. I have one fairly close to home. I have a first cousin who has status, and we're not really sure how that happened. I mean, how we got status. As far as I know, we have no Indigenous blood, and 23andMe has certainly brought this to the, uh, or, or any of these ancestry options that you can have. But I'm wondering, this is a real reverse, is, and is it a question of people trying to take advantage of the system, or people, do you think, really looking to connect to a past, even if they have to make it up? I think there's a combination of both. I mean, there's the egregious place where people are taking Indigenous identity to try and get curry favor or privilege. And that's under a false representations that they're making. That is completely inappropriate and ought to be dealt with. And then we have the group that has been dispossessed from connection to their community through no fault of their own, through residential schools, through the child welfare system. But what I often say about that is they have the stories of dispossession. They can talk about, well, I was in child welfare care. I was adopted out and I'm trying to find my way back. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to grow up in and around our communities, we can clearly say, like, this was my childhood friend. These were our neighbors. Uh, this is where I went to grade one. Here's a report card. There's always ways where the truth hangs together. And what has been so disappointing for me is to see these people who make these fraudulent claims taking up so much airtime. And then making that journey for those people who are legitimately dispossessed through Canada's actions, through provincial government actions that journey much more difficult for them. I've found it fascinating to follow, particularly lately with the case that I'm sure you've, I know you've followed, Mary Ellen Terpel. So she's been around for a long time, and a lot of people say she's done so much good for Indigenous people in this country, and, and her band has come forward and said, yeah, she's a member of our band. But you've said, yeah, that's because she married a Cree guy. And if you look at her birth certificate, it doesn't necessarily hold up. So I'm just like, what do you say to people who are saying, oh, but she's such a good person and she's accomplished so much? Like, why does it matter so much if someone is claiming something that is not true about being Indigenous? Because it's a question of fundamental honesty. There are times, like, and even in my childhood, being identified as a First Nations person was a dangerous thing in this society. So we're at a place now where we can claim that, where we can say, for example, in that case, that you're a proud member of Norway House Cree Nation. But you shouldn't be making those statements in a false way after so many have suffered to be able to make those statements freely and without the type of danger that people before us have made. If you start off and you're making multiple claims that are proven to be false about your connection to community, the question needs to be asked about how, what else have you told mistruths about in your career? And it's just like an unemployment situation. The moment you're using false claims of Indigenous connection to legitimize your taking up space and influence and to curry favor in powerful arenas, that is completely inappropriate. Let me ask you how you talk to the kids. I mean, this is what it comes down to. There's a generation of kids now, I'm talking about young, young children who thankfully don't have any idea what a residential school was or what it stood for. How do you tell them about that legacy without terrifying them? You know, what's so interesting is children have taught me so much about advocacy. 
you know, an elder, late Elmer Kershane, he used the phrase loving justice. And he says that children know that instinctually. And I saw it firsthand. When we filed this legal case, along with the Assembly of First Nations against Canada, and children were among the first to start coming to the courtroom, children of all ages, all diversities, and they could see the unfairness. They weren't bathed in this propaganda that so many of us were that blinded us to this very clear injustice. They knew it was unfair that a First Nations kid couldn't get clean drinking water, and they could. Or a First Nations had to go to a terrible school that was run down with black mold, and theirs wasn't. You know, and when it comes to residential schools, what we've seen with teachers is that actually they are far more able to handle the truth than a lot of the adults are. They want to know about what happened in the past because they want to learn from it and make Canada a better country going forward. So we have developed all kinds of tools with educators and with early childhood development specialists to talk about residential schools with all ages of children and then to say, You know what? The good thing about learning about these kinds of injustices is then all of us can feel that we can make a change in the country that's better for everyone, that these injustices don't happen to another generation of kids and actively involve them in that. So they do things like write their own letters to the prime minister. And, you know, they are part of the change action. And this is a good thing, not only to address the injustices for First Nations, but to raise a generation of kids and young people that know that they actually can change injustices no matter where they are and no matter whom they're foisted upon. You talked about when you were four years old and realizations that happened. Then I I was really struck by reading about you and saying that something fueled you for the rest of your life when you were a kid and you were watching the CBC, which I worked at for a number of years, black and white television, and that people who thought that they were good people were good people were outraged by the KKK and... Racism, and that's so bad. And that you were struck by how people, good people in Canada, could see racism so clearly with the KKK and yet not see it here. And then when the mass graves were discovered and so on, and everyone was so shocked, like you weren't shocked. (laughs) It's like there's two solitudes or a third or a fifth solitude. Yeah, and that's exactly why that propaganda piece needs to be talked about that has kind of bade the Canadian public in a way that makes these injustices excusable or that they can't see them as clearly, right? I always like to contrast it against when something of equivalence happens to the non-Indigenous population, what's the reaction? So, for example, on the waterfront, here in Ottawa, we had that big windstorm and the power was out for a week or two for people. Well, this is a daily existence for First Nations and people were outraged and They didn't call it reconciliation when the power went on, right? They don't call it reconciliation when water somehow appears in the taps of people in Vancouver or Edmonton or wherever. I think that's a useful way to look at it. That helps us to see how that mind control, if you will, from the propaganda has really embedded itself in Canadian society. And we're starting to tease it away slowly, thanks to the truce of the survivors from residential schools. And thanks to the children in the unmarked graves, and hopefully thanks to this litigation too. But it is a very difficult teasing away of those things. It's almost like their assumptions or reflexes that help you turn away. And that's why educating children is so important. I want to ask you, it's kind of an emotional question, but when you're dealing with children, whether they're sick children, but children who are helpless up to a certain point in their lives, and then you talk about marginalized children, and you witness what they are going through. 
I have a lot of problems with doing this myself because I get too emotional. I don't know how people who work in these circumstances manage to not break down. And I'm asking how you find it in your great big heart to be so stoic about this. You know, I have seen children experience unbelievable things in life that are heartbreaking. But the magic of children themselves is how dignified and loving they are. Even the children in residential schools would draw pictures sometimes of the sadness, but there would always be a son in the picture. The children who were treated by Canada as if they're not worth the money still believe that justice can come, that if the government knew what they were doing and if the people of Canada knew what they were doing, that they would understand that we're just kids like everybody else and that we really deserve clean drinking water. There's this belief in the goodness of other people, this belief in the goodness of life. Now, in my work, I never knew if we would be able to deliver the fairness that these children deserve, never knew if we would be able to deliver the justice that these children deserve. But there was one thing I was determined to deliver to them is I wanted them to know that we love them enough to fight for them, that we love them enough to not leave them standing alone in that scary place, that they would never be alone again. And we were going to do everything we can to make sure that there were more and more people surrounding them who cared and loved about them. That was what we were trying to exist. And I think we did that. And I think that that circle is getting bigger every day. It's funny. I mean, we didn't congratulate you on the show about your big, huge new award. We did that as soon as we saw your face because you just got this award. But you've won this award and your, your first comment was, we were a team. And when we ask you, what is it like? Like we just asked you, you know, what is it like for you? We should just clarify This is McGill School of Social Work gold medal, and it's one of many, but you just got it this week. So just wanted to say what the award was. Yeah. So you just won this huge award and you're quick to say it's the team. Maureen is asking you about, you know, what is it like? Like, how do you psych yourself up to go and and stoically? And again, you say it's the kids. Like, I think that's maybe a very Indigenous thing that's, you know, like maybe you're just generous hearted. It is heartbreaking to see that stuff. But all of us really always belong in a community. None of us is really on our own. Sometimes that's the way that governments want us to think we are, is that we're by ourselves. Much easier to defeat one individual than to defeat a collective. But we are all interrelated. We all have a responsibility to one another. We all benefit and are affected by the negative vibrations that come into relationships that affect people around us. So I've always seen this as a collective thing. And I include non-Indigenous children, youth, and families in that circle. I have to believe that when we end this apartheid public services, when we implement the solutions that are already on the books to get rid of the Indian Act, to ensure that there is proper recognition of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit rights, that makes a Canada that's better for everybody. So, Yeah, I do have difficulty kind of just segregating myself out from this interdependent kind of view of the world that I have. But you just got this huge award. It's kind of like a big deal, like you're a big deal. Do you ever let that sink in or it's always like you think of some kid who's going through a hard time that you're going to help? You know, honestly, my reflex was when I heard about this. It's a Social Sciences and Humanities Council award. 
I thought about until 1960, people like me never could go to university. And I think about all of the brilliant ideas and contributions that they could have made. And I am so grateful that people fought so that I could go to university. Because had they not done that, there would have been no award ceremony yesterday. And I would have not had the opportunities to study and contribute. And I also thought about the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit scholars that are out there that are having their excellent work overshadowed by this pretend Indian kind of dialogue. And that, to me, I just I really wanted to use that moment to give thanks and recognition to them. Cindy, is there, so we say, when we say Indigenous, we mean First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Is there a cohesiveness amongst all three groups, or do they consider themselves quite distinct from each other? I think that there's uh, there's definitely distinctiveness, right? I have the privilege of traveling among the different First Nations. Like, there's a huge difference culturally, even among the First Nations, right? But there are general principles that apply and bind us all, right? And so, oops, I think that might be a fire alarm. At this point, our interview with Cindy Blackstock took a bit of a detour because the beeping you may have heard was a fire alarm and Cindy and her little puppy had to evacuate the building. So we are standing by. Hopefully she will get back to us and we'll get back to you. The Women of Ill Repute. So, Cindy, I wanted to ask you, when you travel outside the country, speaking of traveling, this has been a very sobering time for Canadians because up until, I'd say, a few years ago, we were probably one of the more smug countries on the planet, you know, very proud of our, our history, as, and there's lots of it that we should be proud of. But then this revelation of the residential schools, the mass graves, and so on has really been a humbling experience for all of us. And I wonder how you feel when you travel outside the country. Do you feel that the perception of Canada has changed? It's really interesting, actually. When I traveled outside of Canada, even Canada's uprising around the apartheid in South Africa, when I would go internationally, people knew about Canada's egregious history. People, you know, they were kind of, you know, Things aren't so great back home. You should be looking at these issues because, you know, we often will see injustices in other countries that are so hard to see in our own societies. And so I think the world had awoken to Canada's mistreatment of First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples before the Canadian government and the Canadian public did. You mentioned at the beginning that you were born in 1964, which is interesting because that's when my husband was born. And so you're like right on the cusp of the baby boomers are up until 64 and after 64 it's Gen X and now the millennials. And anyway, I was just reading about how every generation supposedly has its own ideals and whatever fixations. And so I'm a boomer. And so mine was like boomerang. And today with millennials, it's a lot of focus on identity and so on. Apparently with Gen X, from what I read, it's a focus on authenticity and and not trying to pretend that you're something that you're not. And I'm just wondering, like, for you being on the cusp as you are, like, is it different being Indigenous? Is this whole sort of Generation X boomer thing, is is it real? And where are you? Who are you? <laughs> yeah, is that a white preoccupation or is it, or does it go beyond our limits? Well, just for me personally, I don't think about it very much. I just think that during my time, I was lucky enough to be alive to catch glimpses of people like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and others. 
And to see that in the company of other people, if you were able to invite other people into being able to see injustice, but to do more than not to act on it in a loving and respectful way that you really can change the world for the better. And that has been something that's had a real imprint on my DNA are these multiple examples all over the world. But I think it's so interesting because all of these people were considered to be people of ill repute in their time. And I think that now they stand as exemplars, not just for First Nations, Métis, or Inuit peoples, but for the world. And I think that we need more of them, especially as we start to enter into this new era of misinformation and where there's a rise of totalitarian power around the world. This re-embracing of the fundamental principles of what it is to be a good human being, what it is to be a good person, how it is to honor difference instead of always trying to overcome it. All of those kinds of teachings, to me, need to be pulled back into this present place and have a really ingrained foothold as we try to manage this this changing technology. It's funny, just reading this whole thing about the generations, which may or may not mean anything. Apparently, one of the symbols of the boomers is that they believe everything's going to get better. And you've just said that you believe or you think that that's worth fighting for. Do you think that, I mean, this comes back to what we were speaking about earlier, I suppose, like, do you think that that this generation will be better? Like, are things getting better? She asks, hopefully, being a boomer. (laughs) Well, number one, what is the other alternative, right? You don't think things are going to get any better, then what kind of life is that, right? But on this one, things are better for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children than they were even when I was born in 1964, but definitely before that. But are they at a place where these kids are being treated with the respect and honor that they deserve? No. And we cannot, we cannot legitimize ongoing discrimination by citing the progress of the past. Because again, no other child in this country gets less for their education, gets less clean water, gets less appropriate housing because of their race. But First Nations kids live that on a daily basis, and that's wrong. You've only been fighting since, what, 2007? I think you launched your first appeal, so. (laughs) Well, even before that, like, it's like 1997, I ended up on the national seat, and I was so green. I was so naive, you know? I really believe that if, if we work with the government and we documented these inequalities and we came up with economic solutions to fix them, that they would do the right thing. And that wasn't true. And, in fact, you know, that's the big step back learning of this is that with many of the injustices facing First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, there are solutions on the books. The governments do know what the harms are. They're choosing not to do it. They're not failing. They're choosing. It's a different thing. And they're able to choose different because the public has become acculturated to these injustices. But we also saw a breakthrough. When the revelation of the survivor's truce came forward in the unmarked graves, and we saw tens of thousands of Canadians wearing orange shirts. In that six-week period following to Kamloops, more Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions were implemented than in the previous six years. So the lesson from history is when the headlines die, so do the children. And we have a chance of just not turning that page. Take a bow, Cindy. This is so largely due to your efforts that it It's just so, it's inspiring, it's galvanizing, and we're just, we're so lucky to have you. So take a bow, Cindy. I mean, (laughs) I just have one more very serious question. I hate my name, Wendy. I'm going to change it eventually. Do you like being called Cindy? (laughs) I do. 
know what? My real name is Cynthia, right? Much more serious. Uh, but even my mother, when she took a good look at me, she thought, this is not a Cynthia. <laughs> like, this is a Cindy, right? And that's just what I like. I like that name. And it rhymes with Sunny, our office dog. So, I mean, I feel like I'm in good company, Cindy, Sunny. We're besties. So maybe I should keep it. Do you think so, Marie? No, I think you should change it to Winthia. That <laughs> <laughs> everyone goes home happy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been a wild adventure. A lot happened in this past 40 minutes, but thank you so much for coming on our show. You give me hope. You give us all hope and your outlook is contagious. So I'm coming away from this feeling better than I did going in. Yeah, hats off. Seriously, Cynthia, Cindy, whatever we want to call you. I'm just, uh, yeah. Dr. I'm just, Blackstock. Uh, yeah, Dr. Blackstock. Lovely to meet you and your bear. And thank you so much for everything you've done, including talking to me and Maureen about things that really matter. So thank you. And find seven ways to make a difference in under two minutes on our website. You can get to work right now. What's the website? It's fncaringsociety.com. Okay, we'll make sure we pass that information along. Thanks again. Wonderful to talk to you, Cindy. Thank you. Lovely to meet you this way. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. Have a great day. All right. Well, that wasn't a laugh a minute, (laughs) but she is so happy. She is so positive. And given what she must witness, like I asked her during the conversation, how can you... The thing about kids, one thing, disadvantaged kids is another thing. Historically disadvantaged kids, brutal. And yet she's got, like we said, really positive outlook. I love her. This is like so stupid. But whenever I had to do something that was really difficult, I would always think of Melissa Fung, who was kidnapped by the Taliban and thrown in a trench. I'm like, really? Really? It's hard? But she does that like a thousand times a day where she has to reach out to someone and say, there are these kids who need something. Support this. And and yeah, so she just has them front of mind all the time. And yet she's such, she beams. She like, she emits this wonderful, warm, happy glow. She's quite wonderful. Yeah, the kids must love her with her bear and her rescue dog. And anyway, that was really lovely. And yes, check out the website. She's more than an activist. I mean, she actually gets out there and she's a change maker. Let's call this episode The Change Maker. All right. I'm down with that. Just keep calling me Wenthia and I'll be... uh... (laughs) (laughs) See you later, Wenthia. Yeah. Bye. Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. Such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. 
Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>